0: In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
1: Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, guys. Good day. Uh, Good day, good guest. I'm excited about this guest. guest. I got my spritzer with pink lemonade here. Drink of the week. Drink of the week. Uh, Our guest this week, Rachel Kadzi gansa Uh, You guys maybe got to know her through that piece she wrote about Dave Chappelle in The Believer. Yeah. That piece was great. Yeah. uh, She had another piece out a few weeks ago. Uh, she's had a couple, yeah. Her, her latest thing out is uh, uh, this piece in VQR that is really unlike any story I've ever read in a magazine. It's one sentence. Uh, but it's very, very long. Um, and she was just great. She's only been doing this work for a couple of years, which is really different than most people we've had on. Um, and she's really working like on a very specific idea that she's attacking from all these different angles. And um, I, was just, I had a really good time. It's really fun to meet her and, and get her in and get her talking about her stuff. Would we have any sponsors this week? We have just the one, Aaron, and it's a pop quiz. You don't know. Who do you think it is? LaFroyd Scotch. Yes. Evan just proposed that we pretend that we were sponsored by a scotch company in a way to subtly suggest that
0: we'd like scotch sponsorship. Now you've ruined it. Now you've fucking ruined it. <laughs> Who is our sponsor this week?
1: It's Tiny Letter. It's a tiny letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It's done by the good people of Mailchimp, and we thank them for their sponsorship. Here is Max and Rachel Kadzi gansa Hello, Rachel Kadzi Ganza. Hello, Max. It is good to see you. <laughs>
2: it's good to see you.
1: All right, I'm just gonna, uh, I'm just gonna get right to it. Here's the thing: um, I had never read anything by you, and then in October, the new issue of The Believer came out. And it had this piece on Dave Chappelle. And I was like a big Dave Chappelle fan. And I was really excited to read it. And I didn't really know what you could write about Dave Chappelle 10 years after he left his show. Um, but I thought, well, you know, if the believer is going to spend whatever it was, 7,000 words on it or whatever, it's got to be something there, right? It's got to be something interesting. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, maybe I should like play it closer to the vest or something. But um, holy shit, that story was amazing. It it uh thank you. I just sat there and like read it all in one sitting and um and the thing that was, was I guess it's not super surprising because you're a pretty major character in the story. But I read it and I was just like I wanted to know I felt like I <laughs> knew a lot about Chappelle at the end. Uh but I wanted to know more about you. And uh and so it's been a long time coming, but I'm really happy to have you on the show and I want to talk to you about Chappelle.
2: I'm happy to be here.
1: That was like a very long preamble. But it's here's okay. Here we go. Here we go. All right. So um, can you just can we just talk about that story for a little bit? We'll get into like your whole history and all this other great stuff sure. that you've written, but tell me about the, the genesis of that story. Why why do it? Why write about it then? Uh,
2: how did it come about? Uh, it came about because Carolina, um, and I'm going to mangle her last name, and I don't want to because she's so wonderful. Wakalsia sounds who, right to me. Okay, she is a novelist in her own right and a phenomenal editor approached me and said, do you want to write for The Believer? And I said, yeah, sure. And she said, do you have any ideas? And somehow Chappelle came up. I mean, um, I don't know if it was my idea or her idea or whatever. And we initially thought that it would be a very different sort of profile, just a straight ahead profile where where you interv- actually have access to the source. And then very soon into the process, I realized the idea of having access to the source was going to be a bust. <laughs> um, so, you know, I laid in bed and cried and wallowed for a little bit. And then I decided, well, what what else is there to say? And and I had been doing all this research. And what I realized is that Chappelle had kind of already stated why he left. And so it could just be an issue of explicating and exploring that more um, and so that's what I started to do. And so I, you,
1: you you didn't want to talk to him about what he was doing now or what he was going to do next, but you wanted to talk to him about leaving the show. Yeah. That was, that was the thing you were interested in. Yeah,
2: because I thought that that was probably the most powerful act of autonomy that I had seen coming of age from a black artist. Um, and one that really stood out to me because it was basically like, you know, and he says this about Rick James, but like, fuck your couch.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. So um, I wanted to know where he got the chutzpah to make a move like that. And I started to do this research and I realized that his mother was this brilliant Pan-African scholar and a Unitarian minister. I think actually she's the first black female Unitarian minister in America, which I don't think made it into the profile. There you go. Um. So she was just a really interesting person. She had spent time with Lumumba, um, working to establish a government in the Congo. Um, And I started to see that the makings of the sort of man who could say no to all of this money had long been there. And then that that, that was the piece for me. It's
1: a pretty incredible move to, like, um, approach someone about writing a profile. And they're like, uh, no, I've said all I want to say. I'm not going to do it. And you're like, OK, but I'm going to call your mom.
2: Well, no. What happened is that I actually told her initially, you know, I approached her and he wasn't interested. But in some ways, the piece kind of becomes a piece about hers, which is what I told her. I'm really more yeah. interested at this point about you, Professor Seon, because she, to me, embodied so much of what black America was doing intellectually during the 60s. And also the sense that you're, you never take yourself out of theory when you're talking about uh, our culture, you know, because the lived consequences of that stuff. They're all so close.
1: A lot of people were interested in why he left the show. But had any of those people gone to her before? I mean, had anyone asked her what she thought?
2: I don't know. I guess one thing that I should say is that my mother was a professor, um, kind of of that elk. And so I, and I was interested in Kanye West, whose mother was a professor. And I was interested in these people who are deeply influenced by what their parents did during the 60s and 70s. And mm-hmm. I know I was. And so... I wanted to see the influence that she had on him, but I'm also very interested in the sense that people try to take Black America so much out of context. I wanted to fill in the context.
1: Right. There's so much in that piece about going back through the sort of history of Black comedy and prior Step and, and fetch it Gregory. Prior. Can Can you just kind of walk me through like the process of of not just writing that piece but reporting it? Like, did you always think you were going to go talk to Dick Gregory, or 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 was that something that like, you know, your curiosity just led you to?
2: Um, I started to think about the N-word in comedy a lot. And it's a word that I'm uncomfortable with, deeply uncomfortable with. Um, And so, you know, that idea of a lacuna, the thing that there's a gap in the story or hole missing or something. I said, well, this is something that's fascinating to me. Let me figure out what the N-word means in this situation, right? So I knew that Dave Chappelle had used this word a lot and there was discomfort about him using this word. And so I wanted to see what the origins of of, of that sort of language um, was. And so... You know, I started watching Pryor obsessively. You know, I started watching George Carlin obsessively, and just watching obscene comedy obsessively, <laughs> which was so weird. Because, um, yeah, I was. Do you, just...
1: Did you find like uh, like the jokes you were telling started to change? Like, yeah, you, they did. Yeah, started, yeah and like, they uh... still.
2: I don't think I've ever recovered from that. People still like what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I you know I got into a conversation with a friend, and I was saying things off the off the wall things, and I was like, <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I love comedy. Um, so yeah, that stuff doesn't fly <laughs> in real life. Um, but yeah, so I was interested in what those guys were doing and I was just interested in Twain always. I mean, Twain has always been, uh, Mark Twain's always been such a hero of mine. Um, I just think he's one of the best ever to do it. And so I wanted to connect all of this stuff about how you can provoke the culture and how America's constantly been provoked in a weird way by comedy. As you're going
1: through it, like it, what you just described could also be a book, right? I mean, it, there's a lot there, like the history of comedy. It's like a, it's a big, broad topic. It's a broad topic. So, so, <laughs> how do you how do you find a way to weave in this, like, I mean, all of your work, you you go into this, like, kind of like deep historical stuff, and it is about placing kind of like uh, current pop culture figures or whatever in this larger context and connecting them to the whole uh, history of of entertainment, black entertainment. How, how do you how do you find a way to
2: weave that in and out so usually what happens is that i start to do too much research um and you know i often say this that as a woman and especially as a black woman i i'm you know i'm often troubled by a sense of being inauthentic or what right do i have to say these things um and i think that that's a bad thing obviously but usually the way it manifests itself is that i end up thinking well let me do the work. Let me just go and sit in the stacks and do the work and do the research and, and see what there is to know, which is not to say that I come out being omniscient and all-knowing or anything, but it is to say that I'm interested in the effort of doing that work. And I like to see where it leads me. And if it leads me to things that seem connected, I like to tie them together.
1: Where'd you land with Chappelle? Like if you, if you went into it wondering how he got the chutzpah to say no to $50 million, Right. What was your answer?
2: I think I landed that he got it, obviously, from his mother and his father. And he got it from the sense of, I don't need you all, you know? And and I think that that's something that America's not used to seeing from black performers, is the sense that I'm not performing for you, perhaps. Like, it's not about you. Um, so just take yourself out of... Out of uh,
1: or maybe I am and I don't want to be.
2: Right. Or maybe I've been perverted into being that way. And I know better. Um, And so the sense that you can have autonomy and you can have control and you can have, uh, you can control your interest. And I mean, and and that to me is the one large story that I think, I I see all of the work as being interconnected. So I like to write about people who are creating new models for the way that we see black art, black performance, black literature. Uh, I, I just see it as one long chain of a conversation. And I try to write about people that I love and also people that I admire. And I think people who are, are, are showing us, I can do it my way.
1: Yeah, I mean that comes through like, uh, I don't think I, you know, I just reread all your stuff and, and I don't think there's anything in there where it's like, there's no takedowns.
2: No, no. I can't even imagine writing a takedown. So is part of what you're trying to figure out like w- uh, why you love these people? Yes, it, it definitely is a curiosity. I mean, or figuring out why we all love these people, right? Yeah. Cause, like, Chappelle, my sense was that people love him because he did that in a weird way. And that we all hopefully hope that we can all do that one day, right? That we can all have balls, you (laughs) know? (laughs) Like, who wouldn't? I mean, I I don't want to say that word. But I mean, that we all can have the sense of, I don't need you. I can do what I want to do. And I don't have to compromise myself just to be uncompromised. And I just thought he was this great, great, great figure for that. And we don't have a lot of figures for that.
1: So even though he said no you you still went to his uh his town in Ohio.
2: Right. Um Or did
1: I, or did you go before he said no?
2: No, no, no. I went after he said no, but I was also invited there by someone, so.
1: Oh, so you had you had an excuse.
2: Yeah, I didn't just like go to his town in Ohio. <laughs> I don't have those tendencies. <laughs> A no, stalker the yeah, stalker no, 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 no. no, the creeper no I tend style. to be very you know I try to be respectful because I think at the end of the day these people deserve respect I mean I'm the weirdo who when I send around interview requests I still try to say you know Mrs. Whatever Mr. Whatever because there is a distance in the sense that these people do give us a piece of their lives and there's you know I do feel like one should be grateful for that and, and that could come from working in the music industry, the sense that you see all the effort that goes into getting up on stage 24-7 and making someone else's day better. Um, It it requires, I think, a lot of work and a lot of generosity. And I think in response to that, there can be some gratitude. I mean, there's not... doesn't always... And and that doesn't mean you write a hagiography, and that doesn't mean that you you, you go easy on a person, but that does mean you see the work.
1: And you try and... uh... Sort of empathize with where they're at,
2: if not empathize, acknowledge it mm-hmm. at the very least.
1: The end of the piece. I don't care if anyone hasn't read it yet. I'm just, I'm just spoiling it. But the end of the piece, you're in Chappelle's hometown in Ohio, right? And uh, run into him at a coffee shop, right? And decided uh, not to say hello. Not, not like tell, right. him, tell him who you are. Working right. on this thing. Um,
2: do you regret that at all? No, because he had already told me he didn't want to do an interview. So what else is there to talk about? I mean, he, he, me being a pest? <laughs> 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 you know? Uh, isn't that the point? The point is he's stated all he needs to say, and he wanted that to be it. And so there was no conversation to have. I think also it has to do with I'm sort of like an outrageous, shy person. Like I have the like duality in that way of... I find myself in situations where Dick Gregory is emphatically correcting me over the phone, um, <laughs> but at the same time, it's not my inclination to push uh, too hard on people I don't know.
1: So, and, but I mean, it also ended up being kind of a fitting end to your story.
2: I hope it was.
1: Did you ever? Uh, did you? Did you ever hear anything? Like, did he must have read it? I don't know. Here's the crazy thing: reading through all your stuff, there are more like book references and just like general like need for a bibliography than like anything I've ever read. I like uh it did make me feel like I, I need to read a lot more. <laughs> I was I missed a lot of it. There or was maybe a lot I of, should read less. I don't know. But <laughs> I mean uh you seem you seem like uh you seem like a, a pretty strong reader. Have you always been reading a ton? Um no. Yeah, you got a book on the table? Yeah right I have now.
2: a book on the table. I'm reading um Roomful of Mirrors, the biography of Jimi Hendrix. I like to read because I don't think I know a lot. I also could not read until I was 12. And so my mom would get all of these awful notes home for the short stint that I went to Catholic school saying, it's highly unlikely this girl will go to college. And so (laughs) I I always felt really terrible. You know, when your mom comes home crying from teacher-parent conferences, it gives you a sort of determination (laughs) Like I can do this. I can read. <laughs> so um, that I think that that's one thing. But was then, there something like
1: that clicked? How did that just happen?
2: I really don't know. I you know I think it's horrible to say that because it, it is one of those things um, that couldn't have been effortless. But someday it felt like I just woke up and I could read, um, and I just started to read constantly. Yeah, making up for lost time. I had to make up for <laughs> lost time. Definitely. Often I just read because I think I don't know enough about something. Or I actually love the sentences, and I pay a lot of attention. I think that that's my obsession with music, just to the melody of sentences. And so my favorite writers, I think, have a musicality to them.
1: Who Who are the people that you were reading?
2: That I always return to? Yeah, Joan Didion. She's my absolute. I mean, that's cliche, but she's. If I met her, I think I would melt into <laughs> a puddle at her feet. I really like Hunter S. Thompson. I really like Gay Talese. I uh, really love Toni Morrison.
1: There's some uh, there's some like Frank Sinatra had uh, cold aspects to uh, to that Chappelle story.
2: Only in the sense the center is missing. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the profile that I was really, really interested in as a model, not a model, but a frame maybe, um, was Hunter S. Thompson, why did Hemingway move to Ketchum? I don't think I've ever heard that. Okay, so it's like, uh, I think he wrote this maybe early into his career? Hunter it's another
1: reference I'm missing. This okay. is my experience. Of so reading. he
2: goes to he goes to Ketchum, Idaho, I guess, right? And he interviews Hemingway's neighbors, and trying to piecemeal together who this man was. I stumbled across it, and I thought, "This is fantastic! This is what you do yeah. uh, when you can't get access to someone. You go around, you go to their house, and you talk to their neighbors."
1: <laughs> okay, so where are you born?
2: I was born um, in Indiana. Um, my mom's a geographer, so we moved around a lot.
1: Your mom's a geographer? Yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah, what does a geographer do in 2014?
2: Okay, so a geographer isn't mapping. It's not a cartographer. Right. Right, so she's not exploring new places. Um, usually what they're doing is mapping space, which there's still lots to do in the yeah, sense of... some work up there. ...GIS, right? So mapping landscapes we don't know about, and then mapping known worlds, uh, known quantities. And so... Why does Philadelphia, for example, turn into North Philadelphia at some parts um, and the Northern Liberties at other parts, depending on year to year? Like, what happens in that space that alters neighborhoods and, and that sort of stuff? So, that's what she does.
1: Do you and she talk about books like when you're growing up? Yeah, definitely. Once you started yeah, reading. I
2: mean, you know, y- yes. And she always had a ton of books. So, it was, I, I feel like I was just always there was an attempt to maybe play catch up so we could talk more. You know, um, I think one of the amazing things about having a mom who's so smart and active was that I always felt like, wow, we could have these wonderful conversations, but I couldn't read until I was 12. (laughs) So the moment I started to read, it was like, I could read all these books and we could talk on another level. Um, And so she had a great library.
1: So, uh, all right. So you're like, coming back to Didion and Hunter S. Thompson and these folks. And and, how did you start actually writing for for publications? Because you've done a bunch of other stuff. You worked with The Roots for a long time. You Wrote yep, about that experience. Yep, wrote about that. How did that happen? How did it come about?
2: How did that come about? Um, I met a NPR producer named Steve Rowland when I was, you know, quite young. I guess I was seventeen at a career day, and I kind of knew that um, I wasn't going to go to college immediately, and so I was hustling. You know, like, what am I going to do next? And I told him I I love music. You know, and he said, Well, yeah, you know, there's this guy in Philly. He's a great guy. You should talk to him. And it turned out that this guy was the manager of The Roots, who I already loved The Roots, you know. I had seen Black Thought, who was the rapper, in a grocery store when I was quite young with a group of my friends, and we followed him around through this grocery store, like, you know, rhyming his lyrics as he walked around (laughs) getting, like, rice and soy and whatever he was shopping for. He's vegetarian. And he, later on, when I started working for them, he was like, I remember that, and I had never been followed by a group of... Fourteen-year-old girls rapping my lyrics before, <laughs> and he's like, "It stood out." So you, you know, I've, I've yeah. been constantly. He must have been
1: like uh, kind of excited and kind of creeped <laughs> out. Creeped
2: out, yeah, you know. <laughs> so I got set up with Rich, and I remember I went and I met him at a club in Philadelphia. How old you know, were you? I was eighteen um, or so, and we talked about music. And at that point, I thought I knew a lot about jazz and 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 music. I did not, um, <laughs> and uh, he was gracious enough and and kind enough and and adventurous enough to say, "Hey, yeah, you can come and work with us for a short period of time." And then it turned into longer and longer and longer. And what then, were you so, doing? At first, I signed on like just to be an intern, and then it became, you know, you want to write, try to write some stuff for us. You know, I freaked out. It's like not not lyrics, just ideas they had. And then um, like what kind of stuff? Like liner notes? No, no, no. Rich had some idea about uh, movies or something he wanted written... I think I wrote that down on a legal pad, which is just so unhelpful. You know, I, I was like kind of a pre-millennial generation yeah. where it seemed like it was an option to still do something on pencil and paper, right, you know. Yeah. And for everyone else who was moving in a world faster than the one I had just left, which was high school. Right. It's like, excuse the computer, you idiot. <laughs> and so um, I did that. And then it was like, no, you know, I'm going to become a producer. And so he let me help out with the uh, Black Lily, which was a series they had. And so... I did that for a little while, and that was, um, that was cool. Um, and then I just sort of moved on. How do you get to writing? Where, how, how did you get? I get to writing? Uh, so I met Louis Lapham.
1: Just walking down the street?
2: No. I went to a Thornstein Veblen conference. I was really into that stuff. My senior year of college. Went to a conference. Louis Lapham was there. I think it was like 20 people. And I was blown away one, by his style. The man has immense style. Yeah, the man can dress. The man can dress. I mean, let's talk about tailoring and bespoke clothing and just, he's a lot of swag. So <laughs> I was impressed by that. And then the the second thing is that everything he said to me was like profound. It was deeply profound. He was talking to these sort of stodgy guys who'd come up to see Louis Lapham talk. And I kept chiming in. And, and then finally, he was like, hey, you know, you're, weirdo. I'm like there, <laughs> being me. And he said, what are you up to? And I said, you know, I want to be a writer, I think. And he had this amazing leather notebook. I had just never seen quality things like this, I think. You know, I felt like his his glasses were real tortoiseshell. Um, and he wrote down my name in his notebook, and he said, you should be a Harper's intern. And I thought, okay. And we smoked parliaments and he smokes those you know a lot a lot a lot and i thought that's the end of that like who is going to go home but you were in the notebook the leather notebook well two weeks later i got a huge envelope with the harper's application and i thought i have to fill this out you know (laughs) i mean it shows up i mean i don't think he went through the effort of printing it all but he had had someone do it and that was amazing to me. I mean, yeah. I had read Harper's before, and then more so though. I've always been a huge admirer of Lewis Lapham. For some, I like history. I like historians, and him sending that to me was a great vote of confidence. And so I filled it out, um, and I got it.
1: That's a legendary internship. I feel like half the people on this podcast have, uh, half the guests have, have had that internship at some point.
2: They say it's like that. Like it's a great, it's a huge deal. So yeah, so so you
1: did you <laughs> you did your your Harper's internship and uh and then then what happens? What's like the first what was the first published piece you had?
2: Uh the first piece I wrote was a piece about Jay-Z in the New York Observer. Um, Christian Lorenson, who's now at the London Review of Books was the editor. He had been working at Harper's for a long time and moved over to the Observer and we talked and I don't think Harper's does a lot of pop culture stuff so he said, "Let's try to do something here." And I was real. I'm always really interested in, in capitalism and in capital. So we started to talk about Jay Z, and the thing that interested me most was how was Jay Z going to make the transition from talking about selling crack to being a sort of elder statesman in the scene? Yeah. Especially since I feel like you know hip hop is not very accommodating for aging.
1: <laughs> yeah, for the, for old right, men.
2: right, right. Yeah. So I was interested, like, how are these guys going to talk about balding and wearing button ups and like. <laughs> vacationing in the Hamptons without seeming like someone's grandfather. Um, And I was also just really interested in how aspiration works, right? Because a lot of what Jay-Z peddles is this sort of, God, wealth is so great, which for most of the people would be obnoxious, but I think he strikes this sort of American quality of like, let me tell you how I made it from the bottom to the top and it feels so good. Um, and I wanted to see how long he could keep doing that.
1: Right, before it's like, I don't really remember the bottom anymore. Exactly. Yeah.
2: And it's just like, I don't care anymore. The, You've
1: been rich for the, 30 years. Yeah, the top has been consistently great for a while <laughs> yes. now. Yeah. Right.
2: And so we're still wondering, you know, how long he's gonna be able to do that. But at the time, I was yeah, this really, is like
1: right when his uh, Dakota came out, right? It was right when Dakota yeah.
2: came out. And I was interested, what does it mean to become an author, right? Even though he'd been one, I think. I think I see anyone who writes anything down as being an author. But what does it mean to author into your existence? Um,
1: yeah, I mean that's the thing that came up in that uh, RZA piece you wrote too. It's about like rappers trying to write their autobiographies, and, and there's something in there about like Jay Z did it and then
2: and then canned it. What I've read is that he had a more first person narrative of like let me take like a bildungsroman, bildungsroman, where he's like let me take you from my ad- my boyhood to my maturation, and this is how I did it. Right. And he, then he said like this was too confessional. Um, what I liked about the RZA was that he was so confessional and I hadn't really seen a lot of moments in hip hop where people talk about, yeah, there was that moment when I was on top of the world, but my girlfriend cheated on me and I felt emasculated and I had to go and lay in the grass and cry. So I just thought, wow, this is profound. And I was deeply riveted and I just, I wanted to, to talk about that and just think about it.
1: The RZA one was in Transitions, which is
2: one of my favorite magazines and everyone should read them.
1: Yeah, I uh, I I didn't know transitions before I started reading your stuff.
2: Right, no, they've been around for I think I don't know sixty years now, and they've published everyone. I mean, their board of directors is just sick, um, but it's based out of Harvard, and uh, Henry Louis Gates is sort of the publisher, um, and they've published everyone: uh, Sharifa Rhodes-Pitts, and 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 then back and forth, you know, uh, Edward Said, and and Wole Soyinka. So, it I love that magazine.
1: To so read for them, Capital. You wrote this great piece about Kendrick Lamar that was in uh, l a Review of Books. Chappelle thing was in the Believer. This is like a true freelancing,
2: yeah, yeah, I like freelancing because i like I like being a journeyman to all these like editors and and figuring out how places work and some places you like more than others and the places that are really great, like the believer um I just deep affection
1: a lot of time when people come on freelancers come on they talk about just like kind of how exhausting it is, like the pitching and like. Having to just manage all this stuff, and you know, I know a lot of people who freelance for a while, and then we're just kind of like, eh, I can't do this anymore. Right. Uh, maybe I'm gonna stop writing. Did you? <laughs> did you like give yourself uh, like a window?
2: Uh, for what?
1: For how long you're gonna do it for before you gonna uh, try well, and go get I'm a staff? I'm still
2: freelancing. Job? I mean, like I'm doing a piece now about a, a space, not a person in New York City, and I like it. I guess I've never thought of of having a boss. So
1: not having a boss is pretty appealing. You
2: know, so like one of the things I like to say is like I've been boss free since 1999. So I never think about it as, you know, freelancing. Yeah, it is sort of exhausting. Um, I'm grateful because I have to do maybe less pitching now. Um, So that's cool. But one thing that I think is good is that you learn to write different things. So, you Mm -hmm. know, if I'm writing a memoir piece, it's very different from writing a profile or so on and so forth. And so I like that sort of variety. Um, I took a class with Errol McDonald in graduate school. One of the things he said is that, you know, if you want to be a writer, you should be able to write in any form. And so it's good to see if one can do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a piece that you had in in the new VQR that was really unlike anything I had read in that magazine or kind of any magazine. Um, What's
2: one sentence? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. For example. Um, can you can you maybe can you describe that that story and then we can talk about it a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean that was a piece that's very dear to me. It was about my grandfather um and his life in Louisiana and he got into an unfortunate incident one night or one evening with a guy and um he had to leave. And so the reason I thought about keeping it one sentence is that my entire life, all of the stories about my family felt so disparate. Like it felt like are disconnected, right? Like this piece is over here and that piece is over here. And and I think that that's really true of black American culture that we don't know sometimes how we arrived at this point, right? right?
1: And you've caught some shit from your family for just writing about it at all, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So what I wanted to do, and not my grandfather. My grandfather who passed away in October Hugely wanted me to tell his story, and he was a great teller of stories, right? So, he would tell me these stories where he would say, You know, Nat Turner's our cousin, Harriet Tubman is our cousin, and I would sit there and I would just be, you know, blown away by this sense of connectivity that everything could be related to us, and we could, we had no bounds, and we were the most incredible people who'd walk the earth. Um, and what I realized is that that's a really, really old form of storytelling. Um, in the black community, and so I wanted to capture that. And I, I love Greek mythology, so I wanted to give it this sense of uh, the makings of someone, or of people, and, and this is how they come to be, and what if you could tie it all together so that you realize the reason why we we didn't have fathers in my family was tied to a single act. Right, one and, night. One night, right? And, and and I think that also expresses just how difficult it is to be someone who's marginalized in America. It doesn't take much for your night to go completely wrong, right? Like Trayvon Martin goes out to get a piece of candy and a, a juice and he dies, right? So I wanted to, to sort of capture the immense vulnerability that exists for us. And at the same time, the immense strength and an ability to tie in all of these broken fragments or all these fragments that were attempted to be broken into one story. And that was the, the sort of aim.
1: The whole thing is in is in your grandmother's voice. Right. Is she still alive?
2: No, they both they both passed at about two years apart from each other.
1: So you you wrote the whole thing from memory in her voice?
2: No, I did not write the whole thing from memory. And that's the amazing thing. Um my grandparents both let me record them. And so this whole time I was working I have one piece of him telling me that story, and then I have another piece of her telling me that story. And then I have all these deep memories of my childhood sitting in her bed, literally, and that's how it begins. And her telling me about Louisiana because my grandmother moved to Philadelphia well, she didn't move to Philadelphia. She moved in with us when I was born. So she was deeply Southern. I mean, she was an entrenched Southern lady and she had accent and customs and ways of doing things and they were all very real for me, right? You know, you, you, I could go in my grandma's room and feel like I was in the deep South and I could leave my grandmother's room and I was in Philadelphia, right? <laughs> and then I was dealing with all this other crazy shit. Um, but that sort of room was a, a hothouse for me in terms of language and and, and stories and and a connection pretty much to the 20th and 19th century, right? And I wanted to 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 get that. I wanted to nail their voices. And she had this extremely elegant Southern voice. And I just wanted to say that those people had the best language I've ever heard.
1: It's a uh, beautiful piece. It it's, was, like I said, it was kind of unlike anything I'd read before. You were literally like sitting there with tape recorders?
2: They would tell me the stories. I would go back later and say... Grandpa, tell me about the night you left Louisiana, and then he would tell me the story and and then but he he was my hero, my grandfather, and and I think that really he influences everything I write about because I'm always interested in people who don't accept what other people think about them and do it their own way and and he was just the 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 forefather of that sort of energy for me.
1: You feel like you do that? Do it your own way. don't worry about people think.
2: I'm not there yet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> when you're writing these stories, do you have an audience in mind? Do, do you care what readers think? No. Who are you thinking when you when, when you put no this one. story? No one.
2: That would be paralyzing. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do. It's already paralyzing to me because often I'm coming to it and I'm looking at like 50 sources. And I'm like, lo- how are you going to get that in there? If I was thinking about other people, that would be crazy. But you do want people to read your stuff. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... You know, I don't want people not to. I don't want to publish it and not be read, but at the same time, uh, it isn't a request line,
1: right? (laughs) Right. The only person you're trying to satisfy is yourself. Yeah. Uh, you write all your own titles. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Aggressively write your own titles. Aggressively. You did an interview on Gawker, which I tried. I did not read before this because I didn't want to just ask all the same questions that were on there. But I know what it's called. It's called Stakes is High. Why was it called Stakes is High?
2: Stakes is High, right. So uh, Gawker commenters get very mad because they don't know De La Soul. <laughs> it's a running, running theme on
1: this show. Yeah, right. Uh, oh, really? Get yeah, it's mad. like,
2: you don't know a De La Soul album? Don't talk to me. Best De La Soul <laughs> yeah, album. <laughs> one, well, one of, yeah. you know, It's like, you don't know Stakes is High? What conversation can we have? Um, the reason I, I, I called it that was because one of the things that I'm always thinking about is that, um, I'm very close to my family in Louisiana. um I have a deep source of a deep sense of admiration about them. And they're the most amazing people because I have some cousins who are huge big shots um in terms of being lawyers. And I have other cousins who are in Angola prison serving life. So, what I think people think about black culture that sort of disturbs me is the sense that we can ever get away from some of the um, inequities that this country has served up. Um, so for me, I don't ever feel like I can be removed from any conversation, right? I don't think I can be removed from talking about underemployment, which I felt like the Kendrick Lamar piece was about. I don't think I can be removed from talking about prisons. I don't think I can be removed from talking about the things that I face because they're in my family. Like this is my this is my real life, right? It's my real life that I have cousins who are scared to drive where they live because they they know cops disproportionately follow them. Um, So the stakes are high. I'm not just writing this to write. I'm writing because I think there's something I need to say. Um, And there's something that needs to be said. And you sort of mentioned earlier, well, there aren't a lot of people doing this, you know, within my particular demographic. Well, even more reason than I shouldn't waste that opportunity.
1: And that's why you think it's important to write not just about pop culture in this sort of historical context, but also this kind of intimately personal stuff about your family.
2: Yeah, the intimately personal stuff about my family... Um, is my way of of saying whatever happens to you is happening to me because we're a family and we're a community and I think that that's the way I've I, I view it um and I think the next piece that I really 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 want to write is about my cousin who's serving life in Angola as a non-violent offender um, and he's my age and so when when you know, the last time I was near Angola, I went and I tried to visit him. And I wasn't allowed because I hadn't put the right paperwork together. But I put money on his commissary. And one of the things I noticed was that we're the same age. But he's going to serve the rest of his life behind bars. And and that, to me, was just earth-shattering and and, and really heartbreaking. And so... I feel very close to all of these stories, and and I I don't see myself as writing about pop culture, really. Um, I just write about black people, and so whatever situations we find ourselves in, these people are just lenses to a larger conversation.
1: Were you close with your cousin?
2: You know, it's really interesting. I I was not close to my cousin, but um, my other cousin, who I am quite close to, she told me something... And, I, one, you know, one, one thing that happens is I didn't grow up in Louisiana, and they all did, which is just, you know, the great migration in that way. One thing she told me is that you have to understand this guy is a master fisherman, a master hunter, a master at all of these things that have been made obsolete. And so if everything that you do well isn't desired, you turn to whatever whatever things you can do. What's he in prison for? Three strikes you're out. Jesus. Right. So, the story that I'm always trying to tell about my family is uh, the story of flukes. Like how flukes can change the next hundred years, or the next 50 years, or the next 10 years. And the story I'm trying to tell in my profiles is about how new models come to life. So I guess I saw this thing that someone said, you know, don't let your struggle become your identity. So there's, I, I agree. But at the same time, there is struggle. So I try to write about, in one element of my life, the struggle and, 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 and the triumph. And then in another segment of my life, I try to write about the vanguards. Because what I hope is that a young kid or an older person will see that you have choices or, or, or that you don't have to accept what people hand to you and say, this is your existence. You have some control over that. It's something I kind of lifted from Patti Smith, who says in Just Kids, when I was a journalist, I only wrote about people I loved. And I interviewed her recently. And I said, you know, that's one of the reasons I went into this, because I thought, if you write about people you love, you you give them their due. Right.
1: But it seems like maybe you're also like uh, writing uh, for people you love.
2: Yes, definitely.
1: Not not anyone Uh, specific, because I know you're not thinking about anyone when you're writing. Right, 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 yeah. But you are writing for uh, people who look like you. That's like a phrase that you come back to. I often say that. I often say
2: Yeah, I like the idea that... There's um, kids in your classroom. Yeah, I like the idea that kids in my classroom can learn that I understand why you're mad. I understand why you're sad. And let me show you some people who triumph.
1: It's interesting. We, we had I, I interviewed um, Leslie Jamison. Have you read any of her stuff? Yeah, I, I interviewed Leslie Jameson a, a couple of months ago, and you know she wrote this kind of like disparate group of essays that then came together in a book, and it kind of turned out there was like a sort of theme running through all of them. Right. And it, your work feels kind of similar to me in that like it's these, like focus on these pop culture figures, Beyonce or or Kendrick Lamar, or whoever, tied back through historical context. Is that like um. Is that a thing that you want to keep doing? Are there more people you want to write about in that way? Yes,
2: so many more people. You know, basically, the way I always thought about this was just crazy, I guess, is I had already conceived of uh, the themes, you know? They're all mapped out. Um, I don't want to say I mapped out a book, but I already knew who I was going to write about, who was doing the work that I was interested in. Um and the big work that I was interested in. And and something sometimes new things pop out at me, but for the most part I I knew I know the things that I want to write about.
1: Who's next on the list? Can you tell me? <laughs> well, let's talk. next
2: on the list is not a person, it's a place.
1: All right. Well, that's like Right. So, it's That's it's, mysterious enough.
2: Right. You know, I like Didion. I love the thing that she did on on Central Park in the Central Park case. Mm-hmm. Um and and I my mom's a geographer, so I'm always interested in what spaces tell us um about things so the next piece is about black ownership in the music industry and in black performance and it's a space in new york city which i think is the last remaining space that ties into that conversation that emerged out of the 60s of how did black artists start to control their work
1: you haven't been doing this very long
2: what does that mean? <laughs>
1: I've got, it's set up for a question. Just saying, you haven't like.
2: Yeah. It's a couple of years. Yeah, two years.
1: And like you're kind of going out and and um, you're doing doing your own thing, not yeah. worrying not worrying about who's going to read it or really what people think, and yet um, like that Chappelle piece getting nominated for National Magazine Award. <laughs> I'm I guess, really
2: grateful for that. Yeah, that's awesome.
1: It was deserved. I guess I'm interested in why you think people. Uh, why you think people have responded so positively to your work?
2: If people have, I'm really grateful for that because I don't think that anyone is obliged to read pieces that require so much rapt attention. But I do think that you don't see a lot of writing about black people that's intelligent, that's empathetic, that strives to be vanguard and say... I'm going to match with style the form. So one of my favorite books is Miles Davis's autobiography that he wrote with Quincy Troop. And the reason I love it is because the colors and the energy that they bring to the story of Miles Davis's life matches the intensity of his music. Um, It matches the genius of his music and the poetry of his music, and also the I don't give a fuckness of his music I'm this good so one of the things I always I always like about reading people writing about their lives um, is that they control the narrative and so I think one thing people might respond to is the sense that I'm just trying to honor that sort of thing Mm -hmm. um, and saying these people are really good they deserve good writing about them
1: yeah yeah i mean uh, uh it is unique in that way. there are not a lot of black women writing about black artists in these kinds of publications it's not like a that's not like a consistent uh thing in the believer or the l a review of books or no. um
2: there should be more i agree and you know so that's like the huge thing that I do think that publishing is incredibly problematic in that way, and so every time I'm asked to do one of these things, I just I do want to say it, it's abysmal and it's really pathetic that there are there isn't more diversity.
1: How do you think that changes? Like, how how does that improve?
2: Toni Morrison says something that's really brilliant, and she says, uh, "I can't be the doctor and the patient." <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. you know, you change it by hiring. It's yeah. not that deep. Yeah. So if you have the inclination, do it. There's but- so many talented people out there. And so, you know, things like the word culture fit in those language, that sort of language. It's really terrifying to me because I do think it's regressive because the thing that that I like to do is, you know, I'm really helped by reading books and people who aren't like me. And I think that we all are.
1: That's a good answer. I want to ask you about um, being a teacher.
2: OK. Yeah.
1: So how long were you a teacher?
2: Oh, God. I, I mean, I've taught all over. So I started teaching my first year out of college and I taught until maybe a few years ago. Not just high school, but I've taught Columbia, all over the place. Eugene Lang. I taught urban studies at Eugene Lang.
1: <laughs> but I'm interested in, uh, particularly in, you, you taught public school. Yeah. taught middle school?
2: I taught high school. I taught what New York City Public School calls special education, a word that I just think is horrible. But, um, so I taught those, those kids, and disproportionately they were uh, young men of color, they were absolutely brilliant. And I still am in contact with many of them or some of them. Um Not. I have I have one student who blows me away. She's so successful, she's so on it. And once a year or so I like to take her out and we go out to like a big girly dinner and we, we hang out and catch up. But basically what what that taught me I, I would say if I wanted any audience, when I when I met those kids I realized that they were really, really damaged by not having control over how they're perceived and just that they were brilliant kids and the sense of they're just shuttled into this special education thing. So one of the things I always try to do is say, how can you serve up a correction to someone's perception? Um, because often we see things wrong if we remove context. So you see these kids and you think, oh, this kid's shouting in the classroom. That's the bad kid. No, actually, that's not the bad kid. That's a kid who maybe had a bad morning. And so... What can we do to kind of recover that story? And so that's why I really liked it, and I like that sort of work. And I think that's the biggest thing I think about is, like, uh, a correction. How do you serve it up?
1: What are you trying to correct in your work? I mean, how does that translate to the stuff you're doing?
2: Um, okay, so one of the things I thought about with the Bayhive, right?
1: An essay about Beyonce's fans. Yeah, Beyonce's Ran on NPR, fans. right? Right,
2: right. Where I was really, like, exhausted by the language you see of Michelle Obama is so tough. You know, these women are so aggressive. Oh, they're so brassy. And and you see this all the time with women of color, that they're just, they're so antagonistic. And I just thought, this is bullshit, right? Like, these are women who are dealing with some of the highest rates of domestic violence. These are women who are holding down single parent households, you know, and it goes back to Sojourner Truth's classic speech of ain't i a woman. I mean, it's just like they're doing so much and they deserve to have their femininity protected and they deserve to be understood when they are acting brassy, which all women can do. <laughs> um so what I felt about the beehive is that yeah, they do ridiculous things, right? But at the same time, I felt like there's a longing and and then Beyonce fills a need. And so often why I think about people in pop culture is not because I'm particularly interested in them, but I'm interested in why people are interested in them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I again, like reading that piece, you go to like a show at Barclays. Right. And the beginning of the thing is just being there and watching <laughs> these mostly women like... I don't know, like uh, kinda while out. While <laughs> <out. laughs> like like uh out. They are out. This yeah, is like, like a night out. Yeah, and they're like, night- going <laughs> for it. They're fucking going for it. <laughs> and and it's awesome, it rules. But I I, it, <laughs> I I when I was reading this, like it fit so perfectly. And this happens with the Chappelle thing too. Like it, like you're dealing with these kind of um ambiguous ideas, or at least they're not super clean. You know, it's like it's uh there's there's uh margin of error. In 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 the ideas and I, I guess I'm I'm interested in like did you know what it was going to be like when you went there did you have do you do you have these ideas kind of fully formed or is part of it are you coming to the beehive and just being like like what what's the deal with this like what what what's going on or or, or do you know it before you start
2: no I try not to ever think that I know the story I like the story I like to follow the story which is something I learned from um, this teacher at Columbia who was the best teacher to me there, um, Patty O'Toole. And Patty was amazing because I would write these pieces about Beanie Siegel and the Rizza. You know, I started working on that piece like my last semester at Columbia, and she writes about, like, Theodore Roosevelt. But she would talk to me about my work as if she was intimate with it, or as as if she cared, or as if it was just about the story. The Rizza, the (laughs) Jizza. Yeah, you know, like, it would be like... Uh, Right, right, right. Like talking to her and she'd be like old dirty bastard. And it was like, (laughs) yes. But that was when I I started to realize if you nail down very technical aspects of a story, hopefully you can take anyone on that journey with you. Um, So I try not to think about where the story is going to take me. Just that um, it's my job to figure out what's compelling and, and, and to tie it all together. Sounds about right.
1: Uh, okay I'm going to blow up your spot a little bit. Uh we were talking before we started and you were saying that um when you started writing you were only going to do it for like a couple of years and if it didn't work out it, didn't, it wasn't right. going to work out. Right. What was like what, what was the metric? What, what what was the way you were thinking about that? Like uh what was a thing that it, what did you have to do? What did you have to accomplish to keep doing it?
2: Well I think what I thought was that it's a little bit arrogant to keep pursuing something that no one is interested in. And so if I was going to write these things that at some point were just becoming deeply private then why not just let them be private and, and continue on? If, if people didn't get what I was trying to do, which is tell this very, very long history um, you know of how the 21st century connects to the 20th century, the 19th century, the 18th century in Black America. And um I come from a family where they're taskmasters. And so there there's not a lot of do things for pleasure or leisure. <laughs> right. So it's like you, go, you know, go my find mom find yourself in Yeah, for you 10 know, years. right. Like my mom's a single mom. There's no safety net. You know, like it's like people hear, oh, your mom's a professor. It's like, okay. Professors don't pull in a lot of money every. like it's like, what are you talking about? So, yeah, I was privileged in the sense my mom had books around. But at the same time, my mom raised her kids on her own, you know? So there's a sense of always, what are you doing? Um And that's the question I guess I constantly ask myself. and 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 who knows, You know, I don't think of myself as a writer. I think of myself as I'm really surprised to hear you say that. I just don't. I think of myself as someone who writes. But I I think that um, you don't do it for other people, you do it for yourself. So at the moment, other people don't want to read it. I don't know what the point is of continuing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you don't think of yourself as a writer, what do you think of yourself as?
2: Oh, someone who writes, someone who teaches, someone who reads.
1: Reading is a a real part of the profession?
2: Reading is a huge part of the profession. I really like to read. I mean, we we can talk about books all the time, but I mean, uh, yeah, I love books. I like All sorts of books. You know, I'm I I tend to really like Russian literature, which is really weird. But I sort of like the way people work out their anxieties and their failures in writing. And that has always been seductive. So I I, I like to know that um other people have walked this road.
1: (laughs) Um, Rachel, thank you very much for taking the time. You're welcome. thanks for listening to long form i'm max linsky my co-hosts are aaron lammer and evan ratliff our editor is jenna weiss berman our intern this week tim maddox thanks to our sponsor tiny letter and thanks very much to rachel katsigansa for coming in uh if you have not read rachel's stuff yet you should remedy that there's going to be a lot more of it soon and you're going to want to read that too we'll see you next week